and welcome to Sticky from the Inside, the employee engagement podcast that looks at how to build stickier, competition-smashing, consistently successful organisations from the inside out. I'm your host, Andy Gorham, and I'm on a mission to help more businesses turn the lights on behind the eyes of their employees, light the fires within them, and create tons more success for everyone. This podcast is for all those who believe that's something worth going after and would like a little help and guidance in achieving that. Each episode, we dive into the topics that can help create what I call stickier businesses, the sort of businesses where people thrive and love to work and where more customers stay with you and recommend you to others because they love what you do and why you do it. So if you want to take the tricky out of being sticky, listen on. Okay, then. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about the importance of purpose and culture. I have banged on about moving all that stuff from the surfaces of impressive wall murals and mouse mats and into the very mindset of your organizations. Because when you share and really transfer ownership for these things, that's when they have their full effect and benefit. Now, being seen as a purpose-driven organization that shows more compassion and humanity has been, I guess, a thing for quite some time now, even though there are still too many, to my mind, that think this stuff is just mere fluff. There is no doubting its current popularity or the fact that these elements are key to attracting and retaining certain talent nowadays, particularly the younger generations as they start to make up the majority of the workforce as we move forward. Now, if you're still a member of the fluff party after that, that fact alone should seriously make you take more notice of this stuff. Anyway, I've also been pretty clear about the need for the promise that's made and marketed to match up to the reality. Now, that can be tough to maintain at times, with whatever the market or the economy throws at you especially. And staying true to your values when under those sorts of pressures can be a really testing time, especially if they are only skin deep. But that's when they add the most value, guys. It's also fair to say that these values like compassion can come under real pressure at the employee level too, especially when we end up dealing with disagreements, performance issues, accusations of bullying, poor behavior and other such matters. The way we approach and deal with such matters also needs to stay in line with those values. But I'm not so sure they always do. So, how do we stay true to our values in the face of all of these challenges? Well, with me today is David Little, CEO of the TCM Group, which is an award-winning mediation, culture change and leadership consultancy. His 30 years of work as a facilitator, a mediator, a coach, a leader, and an accomplished author make him an expert partner for today's discussion around authenticity, fairness, consistency, and organizational integrity. And, by the way, the TCM Group were awarded the coveted HR Impact Award at the recent Personnel Today Award. So, you can be sure David will be absolutely steering us in the right direction during this episode. Anyway, enough of me. Welcome to the show, David. 
And I've been looking forward to this a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure, my friend. It's always a <laughs> it's always a joy to speak to you. And especially, I can't wait to push your buttons and hear all your passion <laughs> and energy come through on this topic we're going to talk about today. Before we start pushing anyone's buttons, yep. do me a big favor, my friend. Let's just get a little bit more about your background, what, what you're currently up to and where your focus is. Uh, thank you, Andy. So, yeah, I mean, everything you've just been talking about, I'm absolutely passionate about. So just kind of where where did that fire start burning uh, in me? So kind of go right back to the early 90s. Now I am a, a young a young guy just leaving Nottingham on, on his way up to, up to university. And I went to study a degree in race and community relations, which at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, wasn't necessarily quite in, in vogue. We hadn't had Stephen Lawrence and, and many of the other things that had brought this into sharp relief for us. Um, I wanted to be a copper. Actually, I wanted to go into the police, Andy, and oh. I, uh, I went to yeah, I went to go and study this uh, this degree in race and community relations, which I think it's fair to say was quite a left wing, left leaning course. I loved it. I learned so much about the social, economic, um, societal, community factors which underpin not just racism but discrimination in so many forms. And then I went to, to, to apply to, to be a police officer. Um, and unfortunately, my, my degree, Andy, was in how the uh, the police and the media had conspired to criminalise mugging as a black crime, where actually young black men were more likely to be victims of, of mugging than they were to be offenders, and how uh, I looked at in particular the Met and the Sun newspaper at the time. And I stood up in my uh, selection centre, the graduate selection centre for this police force, and we had to talk about ourselves, and everyone talked about their geography degree and their history degree and their... Uh, and, and their lovely um, academic achievements. And I started to talk up in front of this room of uh, very senior police officers in this recruitment centre about the the, uh, the, the intrinsic um, sense of, of, of racism that we saw within oh, wow. policing within our societies. In, and this was in 1992. So it's fair to say I didn't uh, get invited in. And I was didn't go down well. I, no, it didn't go down as well as I might have liked. But, you know, and, and good as me, how things changed. So I went away and I started to work in community engagement which was a real passion of mine and I got into the area of mediation and restorative justice I heard about some work being done in Bristol uh, and in London so I went around and I found out and started to look at this amazing thing called mediation and restorative justice which at the time was was, was barely heard about or, or talked about so I set up what was one of the country's first mediation and restorative justice programs up in Leicester the lovely city of Leicester in East Midlands mm -hmm. and started to bring neighbours in dispute together um, you know, went to work in schools. I set up a project called Chris, the Conflict Resolution in Schools program, treating young, pint-sized mediators in the classroom and in the playground. I loved it, and I was very fortunate. The BBC uh, came in and made a documentary of my work for their One Life series, actually, which was a wonderful achievement. And I started to be invited to go into serious criminal activity, up to and including unlawful killing, and bringing together victims and offenders and families together. Um, and I started to realise the power, Andy, of dialogue, of engagement, mm. of empowerment, of alignment, of of, of listening, of empathy. You talked a lot about compassion. So I started to see this playing out in some tough environments. And I got a phone call from um, the UK Civil Service, the Cabinet Office, and, and two large London boroughs to come in and do some work with them to bring in this stuff around um, restorative practices into their work around inclusion and, and diversity and, and equity. And it was groundbreaking. This is 2001. Mm. And I studied an MBA to try and understand how businesses work. I got a distinction in, in my MBA looking at restorative practices as a, as a, as a driver of, of organisational change and underpinning 
I'm a big fan of total quality management, Japanese management system. So I looked at conflict management within the value chain and I looked okay. at conflict resolution as part of quality system in organizations. Slightly boring, but really, really interesting, I yeah. thought. Um, you know, uh, and I dived into that. I got my distinction in that and then realized, Andy, I started to go into organizations and I started to speak to people about their experiences of disagreements, quarrels, fights, falling out, grievances, bullying, harassment. Wow. It whoa, <laughs> whoa. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah. I could not believe how bad it was. I could not believe how woeful our organizations were at handling this stuff. The stuff that's so natural and so human and so inevitable was being handled or mismanaged, I would probably argue, through these horrendous systems and processes, retribution, blame, avoidance. Um, the the kind of punishment, the aggressive, confrontational system. So I saw an opportunity and I set up my business called uh, Total Conflict Management, drawing upon Total Quality Management yeah. and Integrated Conflict Management Systems. Bit of a geek on that. I loved it. Um, bought into the Kaizen principles very much in terms of quality systems for managing conflict. So I was unashamedly uh, borrowing heavily from those Japanese management systems, but it's great stuff coming out of Harvard and Cornell as well around integrated conflict management systems and off off i went off you went. <laughs> off i went off wow. i went and this is in 2001 and uh a bit of a man on a mission i went out to try and change the way we handle conflict but of course <laughs> organizations being organizations they didn't realize that this guy was on a bit of a mission to go and handle conflict they just thought i'd be quite a handy convenient person to go and resolve the problem yeah, you go and talk to them for us Dave, you go you go <laughs> So you go and sort it out there and what um, and all of my lovely systemic structural institutional and cultural work was put to one side in favor of you know i was i was, I was the corporate band-aid i was that person and i realized i didn't like being the corporate band-aid i mean look andy i was running a very successful thriving business by this point uh but i realized this wasn't the, the this wasn't me this wasn't why i was doing this mm. it wasn't my purpose so I started to go and bang on. I had to bang, by the way. I wasn't just knocking gently. I had to bang on the door of HR. I, I had to bang on some of those executive suites. I had to go and bang on the door of managers. I had to almost, <laughs> in a non-immediated way, <laughs> force my way in and say, look, do you know what you're doing to your people? Like, I see your LinkedIn posts. I see you celebrating compassionate, purpose-driven cultures. I see the wonderful things you you proclaim in your employee, employee value proposition. I see how wonderful your organization is. <clears throat> but when I'm talking to the people who are slipping through all of the cracks in those floorboards in your organization and you're bringing me in as your corporate band, I, I can assure you with a high level of confidence that their experience does not equate to what you're trying to um, proclaim to the outside world. And I saw the... Um, I mean, Ulrich talks about these paradoxes, so I'll use the word paradox. I think it's probably quite a nice, it felt sometimes, felt, it felt, it, it felt sometimes worse than a paradox. I sometimes suspected it was being driven for certain reasons and people gained from these processes. But the paradox was we, we were talking about these modern and progressive systems, but when we fell out, when we disagreed, when our performance dropped, when our behavior um, slipped in one way or the other, we came down and crushed those situations and those individuals. And it didn't feel right. So that, that set me on a mission, Andy, to go and start talking about culture and HR and leadership. And wow, 
that that's been the last what? 10 years fantastic what a background mate what that's that's some impressive background and puts you in the box seat for leading this discussion today and david it would be remiss of me to just pick up with you on the recent award that you picked up i mean that's a that's a pretty big thing right uh, we were blown away it was a fantastic night and a real achievement and it was a a testament to the partnership that we've been building with Burberry, um, who are a great organisation, take this stuff so seriously. And Claire Salter at, at Burberry has been such an incredible advocate and ambassador for new approaches for managing disagreements, for handling concerns and conflict. So, yeah, the award was a celebration of, of a project we've been working with Burberry on for the, last, the past couple of years, and the, to replace their the grievance and disciplinary procedure with a resolution framework, what we're called in Burberry, a stepping stone to resolution framework. And we created, and Burberry created within the organization, a, 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 a tool called the Burberry Hub, which provides support for managers, for employees, and for others who want to find a way of navigating their way through disagreements and challenges. And it's working in the US, uh, in the UK, and working globally. The response from everyone involved has been so positive. And the award really did shine a light on innovative practices from an employment law and employee relations perspective and was a fantastic celebration of a new progressive approach for managing these perennial problems that I think many of us uh, understand of, of conflict and disagreements in the workplace. So yeah, it was a, it was a, a real career high for me and um, thanks again to everyone at Burberry, but also the TCM team. We all went out, we were all there for that night and um, I think it was a real chance for us to come together and, and, and celebrate being a fabulous team well many congratulations my friend that's that's some deal thanks andy i've still got the hangover (laughs) (laughs) i sort of mentioned in the intro that words like compassionate and purpose-driven have become almost all all the rage or certainly you know they they, they're headliney but i'm a huge pedant (laughs) when it comes to promise versus reality I yeah. get really wound up with people spending time marketing money, telling one story about their organization, but then something is very different behind the Wizard of Oz curtain. <laughs> What's your experience been, particularly with that mediation background, when things get difficult, when you're under pressure, when businesses have got performance issues, when there's disagreements, when there's accusations of bullying? What, what do you see happen? to organisations where either that veneer of values slips or they absolutely double down and deal with stuff, you know, in adherence with their values. What have you seen? Well, I mean, it's a really great question. I mean, I I, 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 I very much a mediator is a person-centred approach, but I also think in systems. So I, I've, and I've been quite fortunate in respect to be able to, to bring my, my, my approach to the mediator and a restorative practitioner and that close work with, with individuals. But think of this, systemically so i can analyze that through a sort of lens of, of the system in our organization mm. so i mean, the first thing that i see within organizations is a, a huge culture which i often describe as extensive inaction or expensive overreaction and that results in people falling through the gap of, of needing to have action now that action is the thing we're talking about compassion but what does that actually mean as a management intervention what what's that look like to be able to listen, to hear, to have empathy, to have a deep understanding of how another person feels, to engage with those individuals. But we don't codify those words. We just use those, those, mm. those phrases. So they're not built into management capabilities, into leadership behaviours. We don't see them in job designs. 
you know, how many times have I sat in workshops over the last 30 years and the delegates have said to me, I'll, 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 I'll call out to the room in the conference. I'll say, look, what are some of the, the causes of, of conflicts and, and tensions in your own workplaces? And I can say with confidence that 100% of those conferences, someone's hand has got up and said, we're not investing in our managers and giving them the tools that they need. Mm. This is 30 years later. So we're not giving our managers the tools they need to be able to nip issues in the bud, to listen, to understand. So as a result of that failure to act, the individual uh, experiences an increasingly worsening scenario. We then move into our formal processes, which is like pouring fuel onto, onto a fire. They're acrimonious, they're hostile, they're driven by a, a paradigm, a justice paradigm of retributive justice. It's about finding faults, right, wrong, win, lose, blame, shame, defend, punish, sanction, destroy, and unfortunately, destroy while it might not be designed in. I don't see the word destroy written into grievance procedures, bullying procedures, but it's if you take a look at them, it's the word destroy, it's screaming out. They're about destroying. They're about protecting the organisation from the risk of an adverse outcome in the courts or tribunal, and it's about destruction. So when we start to look at those processes, inaction, overreaction, destruction, retribution, blame, punishment, when we start to experience those systems, the stress, the harm, the distress that causes on, on individuals is, is, is profound. And also then begins to impact on their performance, their productivity, their experience, their customer, how they treat customers, the customer experience. So at the root of all of this stuff, Andy, is how do we engage with people at a point of difference, mm. divergence and, and disagreement? And until we can start to get that right, any hope to be able to deliver a world-class employee experience or human experience or people experience, choose the, 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 the jargon phrase of, of, of that, that's, that's online today, no way we'll be able to deliver that compassionate leadership and that compassionate management. It is just words. If we experience, you and I, you, anyone could fall out at any time. Yeah. Disagreement is, is a healthy expression of, of two people finding a new reality, a new truth, a new way of working together. So if our experience in the workplace of disagreement is that it is centered around those, those, pro, those, those, those paradigms I've, I've descri described, it undermines everything about being a human in the workplace. And what it does from a business perspective is it undermines the potential for creativity, innovation, learning, and insight. Now, in this rising world of automation, in this rising world of, of AI, what does the human bring to the workplace that can't be automated? That human condition of and that, and that drives learning insight creativity understanding they become the currency of the successful organizations of the future they're the currency that drives the the the, the talent retention and, and attracting the top talent that's the currency which attracts the top investors it's the currency which brings in the best customers it's the currency which drives social value stakeholder value strategic value and of course shareholder value so this becomes the currency of the firm so unless our organizations can readdress how we handle that moment mm. so much value is lost and so harmful so destructive so toxic mm. and so damaging but the, the good news is organizations like burberry we're working with the bbc with next with big banks with you know big global organizations these are striving to do it better but so many organizations andy are like they've got this vice-like greek grit and until we can release our vice-like grip on retribution and open our minds to a new approach and show some courage, 
I worry. I really do worry about the impact on our people, but actually the impact on the organization as a whole. I think this is where this conversation really intersects with the sort of, I guess, the focus of the things that you and I talk about and like to talk about, the, the, the differences behind some of those things. But when I'm listening to you talk about the the landscape of disagreement in organizations, then what I have to think about in the background is what's your experience been about how good people are staying true to their values and actually when they get parked or dismissed because, well, this is different. We're dealing with, you know, a disagreement or something. Yeah. I, it's almost a daft question, but I'm just interested because somebody no, not, goes in and talks about this. It's not a daft question. And I think it's changed over the 30 years that I've been working with organizations. So 30 years ago, I think there was a sort of suck it up kind of attitude to this stuff. And people did, but it, it destroyed them internally. And, you know, we saw horrendous impact on people's mental health, their well-being. We saw some very serious and very high profile um, situations where people affected were affected in, in a very terrible way and teams were destroyed. I remember doing a mediation in a team where the manager had literally brought one of the um, estate people in to build a wall, literally build a wall in the team to split two parts of the Good team fisher than yeah so it was it was it was it was a visible expression of this manager's inability to cope with this team i think fast forwarding now i think people are not sucking it up anymore people are not tolerating it and accepting it anymore randy and although there are a lot of people out there and people who listen to this podcast no doubt will uh who have personal experience of this will still see the same patterns forming in our organization but people are now calling out the mm. paradox or the hypocrisy. People are starting to demand better. I think we are starting to see people shifting, you know, the great resignation that followed the uh, the great pandemic and, you know, people starting to make real decisions about where they wanted to put their time and their labour into the organisation. People put in their own wellness and well-being above their uh, financial requirements and making some powerful life life choices. I think the rise of social media has given people a voice for challenging and calling out behaviours. I think there's less acceptance of the toxic culture. And of course, we can look at so many examples over the last 12 months of high-profile toxic cultures, which have begun to shift the dial in the way that we think about organisations. There was a fire service only this week, um, which had been taken over by commissioners because of a toxic culture. So there is now no regulators, the Care College Commission come to mind amongst others, who are out there expecting organisations to be demonstrably building better cultures. Mm. There is a there's a change happening. People are starting to become less tolerant. The problem I, I perceive exists still is the canker that exists within the organisation is the policy framework. Because what we're taught, Andy, as managers and, and as HR professionals, is follow your policy. Yeah. And that that's the first thing. You can walk into any CIPD um, uh, course or any leadership program or any HR uh, conversation. And the first thing is let's just follow your policy. And it all becomes a mantra follow your policy, follow your policy. If the policy takes you on a journey of blame, shame, punish, destroy, and you're following your policy, then we have to take a long, hard look at the policy environment that's created in our organization. Mm -hmm. So, whilst one is optimistic that change is, is happening and people are calling this out and people are standing up and saying this is not acceptable. And, as I said, big, big organizations like like Burberry and others are, are doing something better and doing something different. Yeah. Till we start to change and rewire our thinking about the rules-based system within our workplaces. And this goes for the principles around justice and how we think about justice in our workplaces. 
it will forever be dressing around the edges until we have this big conversation about what is it that HR are trying to achieve through their policy frameworks and how do we secure a just, fair, inclusive, sustainable, lasting, compassionate outcome for a rules-based system which isn't centered around blame, shame, punish, destroy. And we're starting to see that discourse happening, but it's not, in my view, happening fast enough because every day is another life destroyed, another relationship born asunder, another organization finding um, itself in, in a court over something that should have been dealt with at a much earlier stage. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you mentioned the the support isn't being given to the managers. And yeah. on occasions we have referred to that cohort as the frozen middle in an organization because they are I like that, yeah. they are being, you know, given instruction from on high and caught between the people in their care and sort of oscillating somewhere in, in, in the middle at times. And and as somebody, I guess, who's had to administer and implement policies, the thing I always found was, and I, I, I've had good examples of, of, of working with a policy and others where I've felt completely exposed, is that where the difference has been has always been in the human focus. I, I found as a leader, director, manager of people in that we didn't all act the same. We didn't all have the same personal values. And if I fought against a policy to try and treat someone who I, in a way I felt they in, that they should and deserved to be treated, then an element of fairness was at risk because I was treating somebody differently to, to the policy, but the policy felt either out of touch or inhuman at times is that is that a conflict that you that that you recognize it's a massive one and this is a, i mean you've touched on a really interesting point the people offer up policy as a form of driving consistency and compliance we've got the mm. policy it drives consistency and compliance it will embed a fairness and parity and equity in the workplace nothing could be further from the truth it's like the wild west mm. it's that bad if i gave a um, six managers an example of a colleague putting their hand on another colleague's knee in the pub on a Friday. And I say, follow the policy and take me to an outcome. I'm going to get six different outcomes. I'll tell you why I'm going to get six different outcomes. Heuristics, bias, personal beliefs, personal experiences, so many factors that will make that up. Yeah. Now, there's nothing in the process that provides any governance. There's no compliance. There's no scrutiny of the process. So the manager is, A, they're not given the skills to manage, manage it effectively. B, it's full of heuristics and bias. There's no, there's no governance and, 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 and accountability within that process. So the manager is left to hang out to dry. And if they say or do the wrong thing, they too then will themselves be a victim of said policy. So the manager feels um, unable to act, hence that drives that inaction that I was talking about. Or if they do take robust, robust action and the organisation perceives it's the wrong action or the, other, the employee feels it's bullying or, or harassment of some form or another, then the act falls on their said manager. So we remove those, those elements of the policy framework for managers. And we build in as the same way as if you're making an employee redundant or if you were going through a recruitment process, we build in objective criteria, what I call the resolution in there. Mm. And we build in a decision-making process, a triage process, if you will, whereby the manager, in partnership with one of their people partners, in partnership with their union, will sit down and look at a particular case and they will start to assess the case against a set of objective criteria. 
severity, complexity, the duration of the case, the needs of the parties, the risk of the situation, the risk to the business and to the individuals. We're doing a dynamic risk assessment. And through that triaging process, we'll start to, in essence, score the case um, from, from a sort of low, medium to higher score. And based on that score, would then suggest, okay, which is the best way for us to handle this? Is this a misunderstanding between two people? Well, let's go and have a coffee. Let's get some coaching in and maybe provide some support to help them work their way through that. If it's a more serious situation, then well, perhaps we could bring in a mediator and a facilitator to bring our two parties together. And of course, in the more serious cases, it may well be we need to go down the more formal route and investigation, suspension, resulting in some form of a, a, a formal outcome. But what we're doing with organisations is designing in a system for, for, for providing consistency, objectivity and scrutiny. And we also develop resolution centres. They're like a very modern version of an ombud scheme. And the resolution centre um, evaluates the, the, the process and providing, like Burberry, creates the Burberry hubs, they're supporting managers. But what I get really excited about here is, you know, if you look at, uh, Baroness Casey's review of the Metropolitan Police, or read any review of toxic culture, it is going to contain this line in it, Andy. The organisation failed to learn the lessons from past situations, yep. quote unquote. Guarantee every single toxic report I've ever read said that. So within the resolution centre, there's a constant system, going back to my Kaizen principles, the um, idea of constantly learning from cases that are coming through the system, which then drives institutional, cultural, and systemic change. And the other uh, thing that I think is really important is when I speak to the manager or the employee of, of the situation that you've been talking about, I say to the organisation, look, did you send out a survey monkey questionnaire or a, mm. or a type form questionnaire to the parties asking them for their feedback about how well the process went? And they laugh, people laugh at me and go, oh, why would we send out a survey monkey questionnaire? We know exactly what they're going to say. They hated it. They found it an awful process. They felt ill-equipped, underprepared. Left hang up, left the hang up to go. Well, of course we wouldn't send out a survey monkey questionnaire. I say that's the most important survey monkey questionnaire you are going to send out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go and ask them for their experiences and let's build those experiences and bait them in to the way that we handle these situations. So the resolution centre becomes this powerhouse within the organization. It brings people together. It provides that objectivity uh, that, that I was talking about. It provides the scrutiny. It provides the learning to drive structural, institutional and cultural change. It gives voice of employees in, into the system and it allows this whole process and momentum of what's classically known as employee relations and case management to become, this is why I believe HR has the potential to become the most strategically important function in our firms because as they start to handle conflict, conduct, concerns, complaints in a more progressive way and have the ability to, to do this, it engenders a whole new social contract within our workplace, bringing mm. unions and managers together. It positions that, that function as a strategic driver of data and evidence of what's really going on for our people. And then it begins to drive the cultural transformation that so many people are yearning for and so many are scratching their heads saying, well, where do I start? I tell you where we start on cultural transformation, Andy. Very simple. Go and listen to our people. I, uh, listen, why ask questions you already know the answers to i mean what is the point of of, of that i mean i mean I can, I can put a survey together for you if you want on that but i don't think it's worth anybody's time mm. um no i think that i think that's fascinating because you're now beginning for me 
to add some real clarity around what this move from how you've described, and I always find your language, and this isn't a negative, I always find your language so strong because you use words like retributive and destroy, and what you're now talking about is restorative. You know, these were never words that were used in any HR conversation that yeah. that I've ever had, N never. But the the very nature of taking a breath and thinking about what you're saying and the general theme and push being, well, we need to get a win here. Someone needs to win this argument and it needs to be us because otherwise it's going to cost us a load of money. Forget about all the money that you're losing and wasting on all the fallout of all of these. Millions of pounds, by the way, Andy, millions of pounds in some organisations. Yeah, and but it's we can write that off against something else, you know. Um to the to the restorative world. So, you, I mean, you've mentioned the the guys like like Burberry and and the frameworks that you're now working with. As we move forward, where are we going? What's the best practice? Who's leading that, and what are the benefits? Yeah, really great question. So, I mentioned earlier in one of my answers, a kind of throwaway comment, but I'm going to go back to it if I may. I mm. talked about the four measures of value. I talked mm. about social value. I talked about stakeholder value, I talked about strategic value, and I also talked about shareholder value. Mm -hmm. So the notion of the value chain and the and value proposition in our organization is shifting. It's been shifting for some time. We've seen the ESG agenda, yep. um, the Me Too movement. We've seen various factors in terms of uh, racism and capital misogyny in our organization, social justice movement. But, there, but there's, there's, a, there's a paradigm shift in terms of how we measure value. A much more human measure of value now, much more of an impact on, on, on society. And I think for me, the direction of travel, particularly for the people profession and the HR profession, is to lean into these new measures of organizational value and to connect the external value from with, of, of the organization with the internal value within the organization. And by breaking down some of the old systems which under, under, undermined value, the systems we've talked about, which caused in a, a lack of engagement, low productivity, low morale, unhealthy workplaces, unhappy workspaces, poor team climates, inadequate management practices, so on and so forth. So as the HR function leans into this new concept and these new principles of value and brings that external value into the organization, in essence, to use, to use the term, to mediate between the organization's needs and aspirations and the needs and aspirations of the workforce, rewiring the rules-based system equipping and empowering and enabling managers and employees to have those conversations, creating a powerful system of employee voice and employee activism and welcoming that and encouraging that, that begins to underpin some really important principles. But I talked earlier about unlocking innovation, uh, creativity and learning and insight as the, as the future currency that underpins those four value propositions. Mm -hmm. If the HR function can unlock that currency, then it starts to drive business performance and productivity. And suddenly, again, by unlocking those opportunities and those principles of value, those measures of outcome and that, top, that, that, that alignment, that strategic alignment of needs and aspirations of the workforce and of the, of the, of the management and the, and the and employer as a whole, then actually the HR function sits in this incredibly powerful space working with unions, working with leaders and working with managers. And that's the direction of travel. That's what I call a transformational culture, a truly transformational culture. Is where we unlock all of that potential and we're working with some really great organizations and seeing some organizations who are moving beyond you know values on their lobby walls who are moving beyond flashy purpose statements who are moving beyond some of the the, the rhetorical or semantic sort of side of values and actually saying 
how do we use our values as a golden thread that runs through our employee value proposition into our job design, into our systems and processes? How do we create that alignment between uh, the needs of the workforce and employees? How do we connect customer experience and employee experience and create that alignment? So the future, I think, I'd, I'd probably use the words like alignment because mm. I think that's a powerful role. I'd use the words like empowerment. I'd use phrases like enabling, enabling people to have the conversation, managers to have the, the conversation. I talk about courage, the courage to listen, the courage to, 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 to challenge, to, to sometimes the, the courage to shut up and really hear what someone is saying. The ability to create a sense of common purpose and alignment. It doesn't mean we're all going to agree. We're not building roads yeah. here. We're, this, is a, this is person-centered, but it means we're at least broadly pointing in the same direction. And when we do disagree, we can turn to each other and have those disagreements. So the future of, the future of work and, and, and the work I'm doing of, of transforming work uh, and, and building these transformational cultures and these principles, as I'm describing, it, 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 to me, it's, it's just phenomenally exciting. And yeah, it, yeah it's very, very, very driven by it. I love the idea of the of the values in a business doing what they're supposed to be and mm. be that kind of golden thread holding everything together. That's what I kind of <laughs> in my sad moments, that's what I kind of like wish for, you know, <laughs> wistfully sitting here at my desk hoping for a world where these things really, really happen. Yeah. It doesn't have to be aspirational. I think, you know, when we're talking to organizations, when we say, look, let's get your policy framework, let's get that manager's job description out, let's look at those competency frameworks. You know, it, it, and, and when I ask this question, I don't mean it to be to be rude. It's like, well, where are your values? Mm. You know, it's not, it's not. Where, where, so let's take that question forward. What will you do now to put the values in? You know, it doesn't need a degree in rocket science for people to sit down and say, actually, that we can move, and our organisations, I think, can move from aspiration to actual intentional in delivery of the values by just asking some very simple questions like, well, where, where, where are they? Where have well, they gone? Have they gone, have they gone for a walk? Have they gone, um, have they gone down the pub? Where are our values? No, they're stuck on the lobby wall. Well, grab, pull them in and get them in and let's have a chat with them. Let's do something with let's them. Let's do something and with if them. If they're yeah. not right, let's change them. I think what's interesting is that some still see strategy as one thing and values as another thing. And you've used the word alignment. I mean, <laughs> The values should be there to help you deliver your strategy, right? It's the way we go and deliver this stuff. And if you haven't got the right behaviors or values in the business to deliver your big missions or vision, well, they're, they're not the right things. <laughs> and I think the minute, the minute you really understand what your organization needs to hit its targets, its missions, and what the people inside will respond to, when you can find the connection between those those things, powerful stuff happens. Absolutely. They're the levers that you're pulling. And I think for every manager, every every business leader, every HR person, you're pulling those levers because the values are the levers of organizational success. And if it feels like there's a false dichotomy between strategy and culture or, you know, the, the strategic narrative and our values, then we're constantly immersed in this sort of very distracting battle between these two things and it, it, it is exhausting and of course what happens it pinches lots of holes in the organization so our hr department goes in and fills all of those holes in our organization with these really dreadful policies and processes which are like the, the little boy sticking his fingers in the dam before it bursts the alignment closes those gaps we don't need so many pieces of paper we don't need to keep chopping down trees to make new policies for our employee handbook 
by creating that alignment and using those values to pull us together. So moving from those false dichotomies of this or that, this or that. And, and, and you know, I think I see a lot of those dichotomies in organizations, again, those those paradoxes. But the people function is really well placed, I personally think, to become the custodians of values, to be the, the drivers of purpose, to help to create that alignment. And again, what better role for an HR um, a people professional or people and culture professional that we see HR uh, transform into a people and culture function, which is so exciting and dropping off the the, the old transactional uh, sort of retributive, reactive HR of the last 30 years and embracing a new model of HR, which is proactive, trans-based, transformational, putting people before process. Actually, there, there are huge opportunities there and the values provide that that landscape and as you said if they're not right change them but they're your levers of success we need yeah. to start pulling them but i do think rather than being defaulted to it's hr's job no 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 it's it's the organization's job hr Absolutely. are there to help us guide us hold us to account make sure things are working change them if they're not and really help connect all those all those dots time is flying what a, what a surprise, David. It does when we start chatting, Andy. <laughs> what a surprise, mate. Um, making this transition from retributive to a restorative approach, where does one start? And I know you sort of said before, hey, have a chat and listen. <laughs> but where does an organisation start, my friend? What do we need to do? Yeah, I think the first thing I'm going I'm to ask, do you believe with the following in the following assertion? Okay. That a happy employee works harder. That harmony in our teams is a more effective driver of engagement and customer service. That a healthy workplace helps us to be the best versions of ourselves and to thrive. And when combined, a happy, healthy, and a harmonious workforce can underpin and underscore high performance of our organization. So the first question is, is do we do you believe as an organization in that assertion? Mm. If you don't, then let's start somewhere else because that's going to be the key assertion. If you don't, let's start to go and look at some of the data and the evidence and the metrics. But if we do believe in that assertion, let's go through, I'll go, let me focus on the policies again. There's so much we can do, Andy, but let me focus on the policy. Let's get your grievance procedure out. Let's mark in red pen all the parts of that procedure that make people unhappy, unhealthy, and where it breaks down harmony. And with a green pen, Mark all of the parts of the process, which is about driving happiness, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin, the happy hormone, the positive stuff, rather than the cortisol and the adrenaline that we see so vividly expressed. Which are the bits that drive harmony through dialogue? Does dialogue have primacy? Are your values clearly stated? Is it about creating these, these healthier environments? If you've got a speck of green pen on your grievance procedure, like a speck, and I mean, you might have even accidentally just dropped it on your procedure. <laughs> Please send it through, through to me, and I'd love to see it as an example of best practice. My bet is it is shining red. Mm. So let's recalibrate. Of course, you need red pen in your procedure. You know, you're not, so, but let's recalibrate that. Let's rewire that procedure. There's an equal balance of green and red pen. Let's look at our leadership competencies. Are you giving the leaders the tools that they need? Are you leaning into those? transformational leadership principles, those wonderful feminist leadership principles around driving equality and equity in our organisation, the servant leadership principles. Do you believe in those? Do you mm. believe they're important? If you don't, then maybe that's 
another conversation. But if you do, do they actually start to form behaviours and, and competencies and capacity building for your, for your leaders and managers? What role do your leaders play? Does this become part of your strategic narrative? Is your strategy all about profit and shareholder value um, proposition? Or is it about the things we've been talking about? And do they feed into the corporate strategy? Do the values feed into that? If not, what can we do about that? To your point about HR, we, I, in my book, Transformational Culture, I talk about developing culture hubs chaired by the chief people officer, bringing together key players within the organisation. I've offered eight enablers of a, of a transformational culture, and we've talked about many of those, to creating these, these powerful multidisciplinary hubs or culture hubs within our organisation to bring people together to have these amazing conversations. I mean, there's so much oh. we can be doing. There's so much we can be doing. It's so exciting. I sit here and I'm just like, wow, yes, I could listen to those all day. I'd like to see them in action in lots of places. And I'm sure yeah. there are businesses out there doing great things. Um, I just need to hear more of them um, because they don't take the headlines, unfortunately. It's the other great. stuff that does. Mate, it's the time in the show where I have to ask you to try and sum up your pearls of wisdom on things that could just about fit on three sticky notes. So if we're looking to really align, empower, engage, and have a more restorative approach to conflict and positive cultures, what are the three little sticky notes that you'd leave behind, David? Yeah, so I think the, the message is brevity. I hear that loud and clear, Andy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I think we have to give dialogue time. Dialogue is the best way. Of, of resolving an issue, George, or it's better than war. It doesn't matter whether it's a, 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 a geopolitical conflict, whether it's in the Middle East or, or in Europe or elsewhere, or whether it's an office, a quarrel. Dialogue is the only true way to resolve issues. To give dialogue primacy, get people talking, and throw everything you can at getting people talking and design that in. Build bridges, don't, don't, don't build walls. Mediation is not a sign of failure. And it is a sign of wonderful success. If my if I've got a dripping tap, yeah, I'm going to go and try and fix the tap in my kitchen. I think I could fancy myself, and I'll go onto YouTube and maybe watch a video on how to do it. But when I start flooding the uh, the kitchen floor and the poor cats having to swim around to to, to find their food, I think we've got a slight problem. Yeah. So bringing in a coach, bringing in a mediator, bringing in a facilitator is not a sign of weakness; it is a sign of strength. So to do it early and don't be embarrassed or afraid to to do that. I think the final one is, is going to align to what we've been um, saying today. But our systems in our organisations, the rules-based system, draw heavily from a litigation-inspired model of, of, of win-lose, right-wrong, defend-attack, balance of probability. If you rely on those old systems of the past, if you rely on the status quo of the past, you will get the same results tomorrow. But things have to change. They have to change now. There's an urgency for us to change, change things. Design out retribution. And by designing out retribution, you're not putting your organization at risk. There's no statutory requirement in the land that requires you as an HR professional or an organization to blame, shame, punish, destroy your people. So it's not going to put you at risk of doing something innovative and creative. And of course, the tribunals and the court service are encouraging greater compassion, greater focus on alternative dispute resolution processes. So so be brave, be courageous, and do the right thing for your people and for your organisation. Wonderful message to finish with, my friend. A wonderful message to finish with. I think, for me, this whole conversation just has doubled down the fact that if you're going to be a purpose-driven organisation, you need humanity and consistency. 
and something like your values can absolutely act as a roadmap and they will be especially powerful if you've got that kind of framework you've talked about today and we'll see more people retained and happy and fulfilled in the work that they do and business being successful as a result. David, I've loved talking to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on. If anybody wants to find out a bit more about you and TCM Group, where can they go? Sure, there's a couple of pointers I can give. So the first one, the tcmgroup.com. And of course, I'm all over LinkedIn, as, as you would expect. I'm also the president of a, fun, a fantastic little organization called the People and Culture Association, which is a global hub for people, um, professionals, for, for leaders and managers who are interested in this stuff. So you can find us at peopleprofessionals.org. Um, and I've got um, books coming out. So I'm working on I'm working on two books at the moment, which I think they might well break handy. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, I've got my my two uh, books that are out: managing conflict and transformational culture. So kind of um, pop David Little into Google and uh, or TCM Group into Google, and you'll probably track us down somewhere. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes, my friend, and make sure people okay. get access to it. Thanks so much for coming, my friend, and I look forward to our next conversation. You take care. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Andy, I really enjoyed it. No problem, my friend. All the best. Okay, everyone. That was David Little. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about him or any of the things we've talked about today, please check out the show notes. So, that concludes today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting, and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>